Welcome, everybody, to another session of Culture Shock Therapy. I am your therapist in charge, certified, uncertified professional, Mary Jane Provost, here to give you all some mental health guidance, hopefully getting you through this pandemic, these trying times a little bit, make you laugh just a little bit, seeing what we can do. As we do every week, we bring in a very special guest, we talk to them, we hash things out, we learn things about each other, and sometimes it's shitty, sometimes the files get lost, and you have to do the whole thing over again, and I'm worried that we're not going to capture the magic that we had the first time, but hey, we're here. Welcome, Will, to the show once again. What's up? What's good? How are you? So happy to have you. Now, you've already been in the culture shock therapy office, but unfortunately, our our episode was so amazing that um, I think <laughs> Zoom just f- fucked up the, the the MP3 coding and it yeah. was it was unintelligible. Um, uh-huh. it, it was such a moving hour long conversation. And then for it to be never heard by anybody in the future, it's it's. It's it's very ironic, I think. <laughs> but it, it it was you know still therapeutic. You know we we still have the memories of that first session, and perhaps it's for the best that that the masses don't have access to it. You know perhaps it's for the best that it was a private moment. Just a little intimate session between two friends. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's kind of nice. Um, well, I'm gonna speaking of friendship. Why don't you tell the listeners how we met? We kind of go back several years at this point. We're getting old. Where, where did we where did we cross paths? So yeah, so so we met at uh, at the Voldemort School <laughs> on top of a mountain in Tennessee. And um, I know you were, I believe, yes, yeah, yeah. So. Um, we met uh, in, a, in a little group called the Key of D, which is an acapella group. Um, and I, I became the vice president and then the president of that group. And you were our illustrious bassist. And uh, we, we sang a lot of songs. Most of them were great. Some of them were a little ambitious and, and that's just fine. Um, but we, we, we ultimately had had a great experience and, and shared, I, I, I hope, a lot of fond memories um, making music for, for other people, yes, but mostly making music for, for the joy of it and for the, for the joy of spending time with, with our, our compatriots. Um, we also played, like the last thing we did together in terms of like acting-wise, we were frenemies in uh the very profound uh drama the crucible um we were you, yes. you, you being john proctor and me being uh the the reverend and uh yeah that, w- that was a, a hell of an emotional play just to just it, it was one of the more difficult plays to rehearse just because you really have to give it your all every time yeah. you, you can't half-ass yeah. anything mm-hmm Cause like, I mean, that's the, that's the problem with, with doing the crucible, especially is that it is, it is such a long, dense play. It is so easy for it to get just mind numbingly boring for the audience. Yeah. And so the, the energy has to be up. You have to, you know, <laughs> let the breath go to the end of every line because this guy does not write words just willy nilly. He writes every <laughs> word with huge intention. And so as an actor, you have to put so much effort, so much emphasis on everything that you're saying because, you know, especially towards the end of this play, you are fighting for your life with every <laughs> word either because you are the subject of a witch witch hunt or because you believe that the witches are going to kill you and everything you love. Very, very (laughs) high stakes. And if the energy isn't there, the audience doesn't believe it. And more importantly, they just don't care. Right. So you have to, you have to care. You have to give it your all every last breath that you have left in your lungs to these lines, because otherwise it's, it's gone. It's lost. It, it, it's lost. It's, it's palpability. It's meaning. 
and and it's also i it's it's unlike like william shakespeare's like uh classics like there's i don't think there was like a comic relief scene like arthur miller doesn't do that shit it's it's just hit after hit after hit there's you know uh giles Corey might make a fart joke but for the most part it's just unrelentingly um intense (laughs) i know there's a there's a drunk lady in in the prison cell at at one point towards the that's right end. and that's that's, like, <laughs> that's fun yeah that's like the one bit of comic relief you get b- before john proctor is hung by his neck until dead like, <laughs> it's it's a rough play um i've actually always wanted to ask you this did you did you feel weird about like cuz obviously the movie adaptation is amazing when when you did that did did you like watch the movie or did you like no i don't want daniel day lewis's performance to influence me at all like what how was that for you i'm i'm curious so i uh i did not watch the Dan- daniel day lewis movie and i still have not watched the daniel oh, day lewis movie okay I've, I've seen like clips from it here and there yeah um just like you know in memes of things, but I, I've never actually seen the whole thing all the way through. I've heard it's fantastic. I know Daniel yeah. Day-Lewis is, you know, a world-renowned method actor. I know he's fantastic. <laughs> There's just, I, I have not seen this particular work of his. Yeah. And I love that because, like, I feel like both of you had very different approaches to John Proctor, but they were, like, equally respectful to the source material, just coming from completely oh, different Thank ways. You. Thank you so much. Yeah. So, because I'm, 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 I didn't watch the movie either because, like, the, the, it's like drawing the line between, like, yeah, this performer is like an influence for me, but like, mm-hmm. I'm always worried, like, I don't want to be doing their shtick. Like, you want to do your own thing as a performer, right? Oh, I was just gonna, uh, I was gonna segue a little bit. Did, did you have something to say though? No, no, just, I mean, it's, it's, it's definitely true that, um, you don't want to, watch another version of the show that you're about to do and mm. and not necessarily because you don't want to take their shtick but because it's so easy for you know for you as as the performer to see what these people did and then confine yourself to that box and no more right it mm. it, it really limits your your imagination your your creativity when you have one sort of idealistic vision of the character or of the work as a whole and you know if the director wants to go in a totally different direction with it now because you've based your character on somebody else's vision it doesn't work necessarily with the director's vision of the show and you end up with this sort of conflict in your own head as the performer like do i do i do what i think this character is or do i listen to the director and explore a new world together and allow myself to kind of jump in unguided into this new creative space that the director is trying to establish here right right that that internal struggle uh actors actors are constantly faced with and um yeah. this is a question that randomly popped in my head if, if if it's like a um a fuck you question then you don't have to answer it but <laughs> is there like a fuck huge difference <laughs> sorry is there like a huge difference for you between uh because you're you're you know you're um one of my like favorite musical minds to talk to. I always learn something new about music when we talk. And well, thank you. Is 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 there like a big difference in you between like say okay you're doing John Proctor, you're doing someone else's work, you're you're giving the best depiction you can to affect audiences versus like say an arrangement of Uptown Funk you worked on? Um, and then it's, 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 it's more playful. It's, it's, it's bombastic. Um, do you get the same sort of, uh, therapeutic, um, you know, high energy feeling from both of those things, or are they very different for you? I think, I think I do get the same kind of energy. Yes. Whenever, um, I know that the audience is in the palm of my hand and that it is it is my job not to crush them in my hand but to cradle <laughs> them to yes. to hold them and 
to tell them ultimately ultimately that things are not okay right now but that things will be okay um and and whether that is through humor through you know allowing somebody to to sort of recontextualize their their suffering as as comedy or whether that's through you know deep drama where we can show people hey this is this is just how fucked the world is right now but it's okay we can turn this around you know i think right. I, I i i always love those moments when the audience is you know kind of on the on the edge of their seat and and it's up to well of course not just me but the whole ensemble right to to alleviate that tension to tell them it is going to be okay but you're going to have to cry before it is okay <laughs> <You know>? <laughs> <laughs> um yeah, that's just that's the best thing. But yeah, I um, mean, it is. Since yeah, go on. I was gonna say since um you know you're it sounds like a big part of why you you love doing what you do is because you know this is a relationship where you know in a certain degree uh, performers entertainers why they're so vital and have been throughout history is because you know it's 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 this kind of emotional gift you're giving to a large group of people all at once. And we were talking a little bit before the show about the some of the work you're doing now and how in a post-quarantine world, it's a little bit different. So uh, why don't you tell the listeners what you're currently working on now and why it's, as we talked about, it's not quite the same. <laughs> yeah, so I, I am currently involved um, with a with a really glorious little show um, called My Wonderful Birthday Suit. Uh, it is a cast of three, and um, it is currently playing at Children's Theater of Charlotte. I, I, th I think by the time this this recording is is on the on the internet is live, I I believe we will have closed, um, which means I can talk about it in full detail, and that's fine. <laughs> there are no spoilers. Uh, so um, this this show is the story of. Um, Two, two characters named Ubla D and Ubla Da who live in a land on this side of the rainbow. And it's this sort of like imagined, bubbly, colorful universe where there are rainbows and moonbeams and balloons and glorious things happening everywhere. It's, it's, a, it's, it's a very child-friendly environment. Um, and into this scene um, is introduced uh, a birthday. It is revealed that one of Ubla D's very best friends is moving from her home on the other side of Moonbeam to this side of the rainbow. And they're getting ready. Ubla D and Ubla Da are getting ready for a surprise birthday party for this this new friend whose name is Shabapshabi. <laughs> and Shabapshabi comes in and she gets surprised and oh my god, uh Ubla D and Ubla Da like look at each other, and Ubla D and Ubla Da both have white skin, and Chabapshabi does not have white skin, and Ubla D is like yeah it's just skin, and Ubla Da who is my character is like yeah but it's brown what's up with that, <laughs> um, and so, I think very gently, um, the playwright introduces the concept of of recognizing another person's skin, how how scary and how harmful it can be when somebody recognizes your skin as gross, as different, as inferior, and how those people who recognize skin as a mark of status can be your best friends. How these people are close to you, near and dear to you, and their views are scary. They are harmful and they're close to you, and you can, you can talk with them about it, even when it, it's scary to do so. So kind of the, the moral of this story, I hope, I hope this moral is, is, is getting across, is that skin is something that we can talk about, but that's because skin is something that we should celebrate. And so like the, the, the whole back half of the play ends up being this wonderful, glorious celebration of skin and how it's waterproof, and it's, it's always so stylish, and it always goes with all your outfits, and 
you know, you never grow out of it, and it's it's this glorious thing that we've all had since the day we were born, and it is something that we can talk about, and it is something that we should talk about because it is so amazing. Um, the sh the show sounds absolutely phenomenal, and 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 I'm so happy that young people, the kids, are gonna be able to see you all what you're doing, and and actually take away something from it um in a new way and that that makes me think of like what you're doing with this show it sounds like it's the opposite of an experience we had i'm trying to think of a uh we, we were both in a shakespeare play at, at one point for certainly and but I just, I just can't remember what it was at, <laughs> at this current time but there th there's this feeling of doing william shakespeare performances in a school that is known for the study of literature and all this and say say you're at a Sunday matinee and half the audience are English teachers who, who know all the words to what you're going to say and then theater teachers who have literally been in the same position as you so I, I was you know I was doing my lines and watching a, some of the theater professors you know um, subconsciously like mouth along to to a monologue or something and and Isn't that the worst oh, god I hate that yeah it, it was like it kind of felt like I was performing for like fanboys and fangirls and fan people, yeah. right? Yeah. And yeah, that there's something in, enjoyable about that because you feel like, okay, if my interpretation of this entertained them, that, that's good because they've seen versions that they probably aren't impressed with. So mm -hmm. maybe I maybe I surprised them. But with what you're doing in charlotte you're, you're some i imagine some of these children when they go see you this might be their first experience ever seeing a stage performance um yeah and certainly maybe a a play with the the themes that don't talk down to the kids but just speak to them so it's it's such a it's 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 amazing to me how like theater can appeal to so many different groups of people and I can't imagine how fulfilling it must be to have, you know, the kids laugh. And when you understand, you know, that they're getting each plot, like you get to see that kids are really smart. They get this stuff. Am I right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, it is, it is so easy to just feed children shit because, you know, from a producer's perspective, a, a, a producer who doesn't understand that children are people and that children have feelings and thoughts and ideas. Um, it's, it's easy to just kind of blow it off and say, oh, well, we'll just, you know, we'll play some kind of like, oh, we'll, we'll, we'll make the actors do a dance and, you know, we'll just like shoot confetti <laughs> at the fucking kids and uh, that'll be fine. They'll get a kick out of it and, and we'll get our paycheck. But no, I, I, I think really, Children's Theater of Charlotte, especially, is an, an organization that that treats its audience with a lot of respect and, and, and dignity. Um, we we work really hard to tell honest, real stories, um, just in in ways that are accessible to children. You know, so like obviously, like we don't we don't include swearing or nudity or gratuitous violence. Um, but that does not limit our capacity for um, for empathy. I love that. Um, now, when you're 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 doing these shows, you mentioned uh, before we were talking that because you're you're currently in a run. You actually, I believe, you did a matinee today, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I home about um, an hour and a half ago from that. And can you describe for the listeners, what's it like in, you know, a post-quarantine United States where there's all these different people. Some people don't do the vaccine. Some people have it, but still don't go out. Some people love theater so much they're willing to risk it. What did you experience uh, catering to this audience that is something actors have never really faced before in our lifetime? Sure, sure. So I think... Um... I as 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 a human being, right, alive at this time, but 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 also as a performer, I, I have to recognize who the world is demographically and how the demographics of the world um, are different from the demographics 
of the people who actually end up buying a ticket and showing up and taking their kids to a children's theater of Charlotte production. Um, because by and large, by and large, our clientele do not represent the demographics of the city at large. Um, mm. Now, our, so our, our clients are, okay, I, I say clients, uh, audience people, I think is probably a, a better word. Client sounds like there's some kind of a con contractual relationship that we have, and that's really <laughs> um, But our, our, our audience members are, by and large, you know, like middle class to upper middle class families um, who have children who are not engaged in a public school education. Um, and, and that is a very different audience from an audience of public school children. So in an ordinary, uh, season, we would be doing, um, 12 shows in a week. We would do, uh, two shows on every weekday for audiences of public school children that get bussed in from about a 20 mile radius around Center City, Charlotte. Um, and on weekends, we do uh, ticketed shows for families that bring children. And right now, because nobody or their mother wants to put a bunch of kids on a bus any longer than they have to, um, we, we aren't having those audiences of children, of, of public school kids throughout the week. And so we, we are only getting to have audiences of these, you know, upper middle class people who can afford to, you know, bring their whole family to the theater on an odd weekend. Um, and so when we are sort of preaching to that audience, I think it is important that we recognize that particularly my character, Ubla Da, who who is, you know, visibly quite racist on stage, um, that that his character not be so scary that he kind of turns the kids off, but that he also not be so, so laissez-faire that the parents don't see themselves in his character too. Mm. So like, it's a, it's a, it's a really, tough line to walk because you know if if we are trying to show people that that people like Ublada are real and they might be you you can't make that character so cartoonishly evil that it's unrelatable and you also can't make that character you know good enough that you don't recognize his racism as a fault but but those two lines are very close together. And so like, the, the, you know, the, the, the sliver of, of, of the Venn diagram is, is, is very fine. And so that, that, that took an awful lot of, of rehearsal. And we, we, we had fortunately, fortunately, um, a few test audiences while, while we were in, um, in tech for this show, test audiences of, of adults and test audiences of children, um, where we could kind of gauge like, okay, how, how rampant does this guy need to be and and how how engaged is the audience with his anger and his frustration and and his fear and and how much do audiences relate with that so that was certainly a certainly a journey and i i think i think we figured it out i mean i i, I think the show that we, that we have is is really pretty good um of course, given more time, it would be different. Of course, you know, given different audiences, it would be a different show. Every every single run of this show is going to be different because it's live theater and every audience is different. And so the energy that they bring is different. Um, but I think ultimately we are leaving people with a good experience. We are not leaving people with, you know, a sense of bleakness and hopelessness. I think we are showing people that there is a light at the end of this tunnel, that it is possible to love people for all the skins that, that we are all in. And, uh, and I think people like it, um, but I, I guess we will, we will have to wait and see if the, if the world changes. Exactly. Um, and speaking of, you know, the changes and everything when you're doing, you know, you're doing a show from 
you know, as, as we said, you know, each each performance, you're going to get a different outcome. Now, when you're looking at these kids in the audience, are they do do? Because I remember when I would see plays and like field trips and stuff, I would just be amazed. Like part of something that you'll never really it's very hard to experience as an adult and especially as someone who's done theater is the magic of like discovering it like for the first time because and also i feel like the suspension of disbelief i remember watching uh like one of the first plays i saw at like the, the fox theater in atlanta when i was a little kid and i was so absorbed in the world i wasn't looking at like oh like oh that transition must have been really hard or like i wonder how they're gonna set up for the next next scene like that actor looks like they just forgot like i was just completely just it, it literally like i was like watching a movie uh, the exact same level of absorption. So when you're looking at these kids in the audience, um, do they tend to be more receptive than than adults, or is it about the same? Like, do kids like zone out, get squirmy? What, what's your experience? Well, I think you know kids do zone out and get get squirmy, but adults do too. Yes. <laughs> we don't squirm in the same ways. We don't squirm as as visibly, but like you will certainly hear, you know, like especially men you know with their with their foot resting on one knee they'll they'll like switch their feet yeah to the other knee and <laughs> like try and find a more comfortable position because somehow their body and how uncomfortable it is is more important to their brain and their focus than what's happening on stage and like right. <laughs> what that tells us on on, on stage is, is that like okay the, this audience isn't engaged um right. But like I don't I don't think it's that oh ch children react differently than adults I think we all react like children it's just that adults are more insecure about their reactions and so try right. to hide them, right? Um, whereas children are just like I'm bored and they'll just like yeah. say that out loud and that's like that's great I love getting that feedback because it yeah. tells me as an actor okay uh, this child this child is bored because I <laughs> am hungry and I don't believe in the world right now. And I'm just right. saying my lines, you know, as if I'm reading them out of the book. And I really need to believe <laughs> more heavily in the book, in, in the in the book, in the world of the play in order to be more engaging. Um, and so, like, it is it is that kind of feedback that I that I think I miss most when we have audiences of, of mostly adults, because kids will be brutally honest with you. But they will also be brutally honest when they love what they are seeing, you know, like they, they will, they will clap along if there's music that they, they will get up out of their seats and start dancing. If there's music that, that yeah. they really like, you know, and like, that's, that is the kind of energy that I wish all theater audiences could bring to the table, but you just can't get that without kids. And, you know, for me, the most fun audience is the one that starts out, you know, fidgeting, switching legs. And then like that feeling of like winning them over, that is so triumphant. Yeah, yeah, that's the best. It feels amazing. Um, this is going to be kind of a, a really rough segue, just a left turn. Uh, <laughs> but th this is this is a therapy show, and we, we like to talk about honest things. Um, kids. Right. Unfortunately, uh, this I didn't know a, a clearer way to make this segue. I'm just going to cut to the quick. We had a great conversation last time. Um, I'm going to put a content warning in the description in case people aren't interested in this segment, but what, what are we about? We're about to talk about ultimately vulnerability. We're about to talk about looking at your past in a new life. And we're going to talk about the strength of survivors. Um, and, um, since this is ultimately your story, Will, I'll let you, let, let you frame it. We're going to, um, I'll do a audible uh tag here uh there's going to be a content warning right now for listeners uh trigger warning for for um sexual um abuse and trauma so um look in the description if you would like to skip to the end of the show and uh we're going to get into it um will I'll, I'll let you have the floor all right let's do it yes so um this is something that i've i've gotten a bit more comfortable talking about over the years um, but between the ages of seven and eight, uh, I was sort of serial molested by, um, my best friend's older brother. And this is one of those things like at, at the time, you know, 
I was just a kid. Like I didn't really know that what was going on was was evil, was was a crime, you know, it was just kind of two dudes hanging out. Um one of one of whom happened to be older. And um And it was not until a whole lot later in my life that I realized that what we were doing was um, wasn't right. And it took me even longer to realize that that what we were doing um, wasn't anything at all. That it it wasn't what we were doing. That it was in fact what he was doing to me because it took me a very long time to realize that I was not actually complicit <laughs> in what was going on, that I did not give consent. I did not know what consent was. So, like, I don't want to get into too many details of, like, what exactly we did, um, but the long and the sh short of it is, is that it, it all started when um, he and I were hanging out alone and we were reading um, Calvin and Hobbes uh, comic books. In fact, I've, I've got the anthologies like sitting right, like literally right here next to me on a shelf next to my desk. Um, I have, yeah, it's the essential Calvin and Hobbes and the indispensable Calvin and Hobbes and uh, the Calvin and Hobbes 10 year anniversary edition. Um, and these are all books from I, I I don't know why I still have them, but but these are these are the books that, that, that he and I would would read out loud to one another together alone. Um, and eventually one day he he asked if he wanted to play Truth or Dare, but without the truth, where we would just kind of dare each other to do things. And you know, it, it started out pretty innocuous, like I, I dare you to do twenty push ups, you know, I I dare you to like drink a whole cup of water without breathing, you know, like those, like those kinds of difficult physical challenges. Um, and then it started to get, you know, more and more um, sexual. And, and I think what, what, what his trick was that in, in making the dares go back and forth, you know, cause like he would, he would dare me to do something and then I'd dare him to do something right back. He was automatically making me feel like I was complicit in what was going on as a seven year old. Um, because, you know, of course nothing, nothing would happen to me without me wanting it to happen. Right. And so not knowing what I was really asking for, I would, I would ask him to, to do things to me that, later on in life, I realized, oh, that is uh, a profoundly sexual experience for a seven-year-old to have, and um, not something that should have happened that way. Um, but that's, that's really not what I want to talk about. Um, I mean, yes, the the sexual trauma, when it happens, is important. Um, but I think what is what is more important is how you process sexual trauma for the rest of your life. Because this is something that I will continue to process for the rest of my life, right? Every sexual interaction that I have with somebody is always going to be clouded by the sexual interactions that I've had with everybody else. Um, including, including this guy. And so, um, you know, I, I, I first started to, to realize that what happened to me was a problem uh, when I was, let's see, I was a junior in high school and I was going to give blood for the first time. Um, the, the, the Red Cross was doing a thing and, you know, they, they, they bring all the cots in and all the nurses and they just take blood from a, a bunch of kids and it's great and you get, you know, your your badge of honor, uh, sticky band-aid on your shoulder and you get a cookie and you, you make a day of it, you know? Um, and I go up and I'm, I'm like, all right, I'm 16 years old. I'm ready to give blood. And they give me this questionnaire and question 18 on this questionnaire is, uh, have you 
as a man had sex with another man since the year like 1967. Uh, and so I was like, yes, yes, I have. Um, and, you know, I fill out the rest of the, the, the questionnaire, like, have you had any tattoos? No. Have you taken any intravenous drugs? No. Are you currently pregnant? God, I hope not, you know. And then you turn in th this thing to a nurse and they review it with you and then you, you give blood. And I turned this thing into the nurse and I saw that she circled question 18 and she turned the paper back around to me and, and asked, so because you said yes, we unfortunately cannot let you give blood today. And I said, well, well, why not? And she said, because the CDC recommends that um, because of the fear of HIV AIDS, which is a bloodborne pathogen, uh, that, that we cannot admit blood from anybody who has had, for, from, from any men who have had sex with other men. And I said, well, it, it wasn't really sex. I mean, it was just, it, it, it happened a long time ago. And she was like, oh, okay, when did this happen? And I was like, oh, I was, I was like seven. And she was like, oh, oh God. Uh, <laughs> okay. Um, and then she, she gets a little piece of paper as like a little explainer. And she starts to write, um, patient was a victim of rape. And I said, no, 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 it, it, it wasn't rape. It was consensual. I mean, I was, we were both talking about this. And she was like, um, I, I don't, I don't think I'm qualified to have this conversation. <laughs> and just kind of quietly turned me away. Um, and and she, she ended up asking, were there ever, what, was there ever a transfer of bodily fluids from one body to another? And I said, no, because uh, I wanted to give blood. Right. <laughs> Damn it. Because I wanted to do my part and feel like I was a good person. And I, I will be damned if I'm going to let this guy stop me from doing my part and giving blood and feel like, f feeling like I'm part of something bigger than myself. So I give blood that day, um, and I never really think about that for the rest of that day until I get home that night, and I start realizing, like, shit, like, I, she wrote down raped, and I, and I said no, but, but maybe, and then uh, I kind of spiral for, um, for a while, and I have to call my best friend Rhonda and just kind of hash things through. And so Rhonda was the first person that, that I told any of this to. Um, and Rhonda, bless her heart, just kind of helped me calm down and, you know, and realize, like, yes, this whole, like, CDC, HIV, AIDS thing is fucked up. Um, Red Cross has since, by the way, changed their, their policy a little bit. And now, rather than uh, not emitting blood from anybody, from any men who have had sex with men since 1967, they now just don't allow it for many men who have had sex with men for the last three months. So like, you still have to be celibate if you want to be a gay man, but I guess it's a bit less celibate now. It's, it's still messed up, but regardless, um, uh, Rondi and I like kind of, kind of figured this thing out together. Um, and I was able to go to school the next day and you know, I was, I was okay more or less. Um, so, over the course of my life, I've kind of gone from like really resenting this guy to almost forgiving him, back to resenting him, back to almost forgiving him. And throughout all of that time, I was hoping, hoping, hoping that I could get to a place in my life where I would just forget that this ever happened, where my, my life would be so full of of stories and discoveries and, and, and interest that this thing that happened when I was a child would just kind of fade into background noise, you know, with the volume of the beauty of my life as it is now. And there have certainly been, been moments of my life where I've completely forgotten about this, but you know, I'm 25 years old now and there has not been a single day of my life where I, didn't think about what happened back then. Um, 
And I know that I am not the only person who has had that experience. And I'm not the only person who resents themselves for, for not being able to forget. So from all of this, I think there are a couple bits of advice, a couple takeaways um, that I want people to, to know. If, if you believe that something happened to you that you did not fully agree to, I need you to know that it was not your fault. That you will be okay. And that you are loved. That you are worthy of love. And that what happened to you was enough to be disappointing. I think there's this, there's this really common fear that like, Oh, because of, you know, what, what happened to me wasn't really rape because it wasn't violent enough. Or, you know, I didn't, I didn't, I wasn't screaming no at the top of my lungs. And so maybe I should have been more clear. You know, it's so easy to blame yourself as a victim for not doing more to prevent what happened. But, but you could not have done more to prevent what happened. You know, you did everything that you could do with the tools and circumstances that you are in. And, and what happened still happened through no fault of your own. And it is okay. The other thing that I want to make clear is that when, when these things happen, when, when people touch us in ways that it later becomes clear were not appropriate and were harmful, damaging, that sometimes when they touch us, that touch is pleasurable. It feels good. And it is very easy <laughs> to blame your body for betraying you, for, for feeling something that it should not have felt, for for sowing joy where it should have sown anger or resentment. And for what it's worth, I just want to tell you that your body was not betraying you. Your body was doing, as uncomfortable as it is to admit, exactly what your body is meant to do in those situations. And it's not betraying you. Somebody did this to you. It's not your body's fault. It's not your fault at all. It is what that person did to you, either because they felt that they had the power to do it or because they wanted to feel more powerful or because they wanted to hurt you or because there is some fucked up thing going on in their life and they wanted to use you to get over that. That has nothing to do with you or your body and I am so, so terribly sorry that you were involved. It is not your fault. So, I guess that's all that I had to, to say on that subject. Uh, if you have any questions, though, I would be more than happy to, to answer them. Thank you so much, um, Will, for, for, for opening up and, and telling your story. Um, yeah. I, think, I think it's going to mean a lot to, to listeners, uh, both who can relate to this experience and those who, you know, um, one of the striking things you said was the, this image of, you know, when we hear the word rape, we think of um, some 80s horror exploitation movie where it's it's a 20 year old girl screaming at the top of her lungs. And there's um, a strong older presence tearing clothes off and such. But in, in reality, there's so many different ways this can happen. So many yeah. different yeah. levels and so many ways it presents itself. And 
from what I can gather from what you're saying, it's it's completely okay to accept these things because then once you do, then that's when the the healing process sort of begins. And yeah. now you're in this amazing place where you're able to, I'm, I'm assuming you're able to, you know, relate to others and, and talk to others about their experiences and you, you give your own testimony. Um, and it's, it's just sort of this, this cycle we have to keep helping each other out because, you know, you called your friend Rhonda, she was there to support you. And now you're going to be supporting other people, people who listen to this show can use this information. So well, I guess what I'm trying to say is the, um, you know, putting this out there, even though it's extremely difficult is, is truly life-changing. Well, good. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I hope, I hope lives are changed. Yes. Excellent. Yes. Um, yeah. And I do well, I don't want to, like, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, um, um, well, I, I, I just, yeah, I, <laughs> <laughs> I want to say that if, um, if, if you feel like you don't have anybody to talk to about this kind of thing and you want to talk to me, um, I invite you to reach out my uh my instagram handle i believe is going to be in the description of this here podcast episode and feel free to dm me i would welcome that that's 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 extremely kind of you um we need more people who are simply willing to listen without judgment um i i think you know therapy is constantly improving there would be a time in therapy where you would talk about this and people would potentially give you harmful information, potentially downplay certain things and, and hear your story, not for what it is, but for how they interpret it. And yeah. um, I think it's so amazing. We're getting to, you know, as time goes on, as the more research we do, we're getting to a place of more clarity, a place without judgment. And um, yeah, I, I think, and, you know, this is extremely important not to get too, too, too grim, but um you know, people during quarantine are ex experiencing relationships with sexual abuse in, in a whole different way, in ways that are beyond their control. Um, so th yeah. this is relevant now more than ever, I think. Yeah. Um, at this point in the program, this is where I kick my patients out of my office and then I let them hawk their goods and produce. You've got um, a theater to talk about. You've... Um, I don't know if you can, you, you have another job. I don't know if you can promote that, if that's something that listeners yeah, can. Yeah, yeah totally. Yeah, yeah. So, okay, I'll, um, I'll let you have the floor. So I, I, I currently work for, for two really, really great companies. One is called Children's Theater of Charlotte. CTCharlotte.org is their, is their website for, for tickets and information about uh, the 2021-2022 season. Um, and the other company I work for is called Cornell Zimmer Organ Builders. And we build like pipe organs, like, like for churches, <laughs> like they're big, they are scary. They are very, very loud. And <laughs> uh, they help people worship more effectively. Um, I'm very proud of the work that I do in both, both companies. Uh, if you are interested in, um, in purchasing an organ from us, <laughs> yeah. uh, or if you go to a church that it, that is looking to expand their 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 current instrument, um, we are available at Zimmer Organs Z I M M E R O R G A N S dot org. An uh, independently owned business. It sounds like it sounds like you guys are doing this on your own. You're not outsourcing the work. You you build these no, organs. No. Yeah. 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 So, <laughs> so, so we, we get like rough hewn poplar lumber, uh, from a local, um, from a local mill, local distributor. Um, and we take those pieces of wood, plane, plane them down, cut them into boards. And those boards end up turning into legs and framing and wind chests. And, um, some of those boards end up turning into pipes. And we also take in like full sheets of poured molten lead that has been like dried out and ready to go. And we turn those into pipes that, that speak and make music for the world. So I am currently working um, 
as I I guess an apprentice, although my my apprenticeship sort of unofficially ended about a year and a half ago. Um, but I I am still working as an electrician and welder, fabricator, and uh, and a pipe maker for for Cornell Zimmer Organ Builders as my sort of I would say side gig, but but they they are who pays most of my bills since the theater industry is uh, not as lucrative as it should be due to you know the circumstances that are around us in the world right now. Will, thank you so much for coming on this program. Are there any final words you want to give to people? Maybe you'd like to give a little quarantine tips out there. Everyone approaches this from a different way. Is there any, any mantras or anything that, that gets you up in the morning? Uh, yeah, yeah. So um, little little tip that, that I learned from, uh, from a Tick Tick video the other day. <laughs> um, if, if you accidentally get uh, a little bit of eggshell in whatever it is that you're cooking, you can take another larger piece of eggshell, and if you put it next to that smaller eggshell, the smaller eggshell is going to be attracted to the big eggshell, and it's easier to pull them both out together. <laughs> My God, that, that, so that's that's an omelet or a souffle. You can get your shells out with ease. And see, th this is also a great metaphor for the support system we were talking about. You know, one person is <laughs> they're they're in that soup, and then another eggshell. You know, we stick together and we help each other get out of this shit. We're that's we're right. all we're all shattered eggshell in this together. <laughs> big facts big facts. thank you so much will we're all I, 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 eggshells trying to find <laughs> trying to find our our other big shell partners love that that's right <laughs> one giant egg of, okay i'm gonna stop now my my english major is coming <laughs> out but um no. can't thank you enough for for doing this again and thank you all so much for listening I'm going to leave all of Will's wonderful contact information. If you want to hit him up, DM him about any discussions about what we talked today on the episode. This has been Culture Shock Therapy. Whether it's morning, afternoon, or evening, I hope you got your free therapy. And we will see you on the next episode. <laughs>